Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Diana Cannon Ragsdale, and we'll be talking about her new book, Memoir, Loose Cannons, A Memoir of Mania and Mayhem in a Mormon Family. Diane Cannon Ragsdale was born into a Mormon dynasty. Her father, Ted Cannon, was a local celebrity in Salt Lake City, and her family's ancestors were contemporaries of Brigham Young, and they had many dark secrets to keep. Growing up at the mercy of her mother's depression and father's undiagnosed schizophrenia, Diana and her five siblings were left to fend for themselves as their mother and dad rotated in and out of psychiatric hospitals and police custody. In Loose Cannons, Diana traces her rebellious 1970s girlhood admits her father's multiple suicide attempts and remarriage to her mother's sister. As she and her siblings barreled through into adulthood, they weren't ready for it. They tried and, excuse me, they tried to rely on each other while reproducing broken relationships of their own. Diana Cannon Ragsdale is an author, retired physical therapist, and mental health advocate for survivors of abusive and dysfunctional families. Diana attended Utah State University on a dance scholarship and then several years later received her degree from the University of Utah. In retirement, she has dedicated herself to travel and creativity. For more information, you can visit Diana's website, which is www.dianaregsdale.com and that's Diana, R-A-G-S-D-A-L-E dot com. With that, I'd like to welcome Diana to the show. Good day, Diana. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show. It is my pleasure. And boy, is, is your story jam-packed with all kinds of stuff. So, uh, it's good. I'm yes, really I've heard that before. <laughs> and you've lived it, so you know very personally exactly what that's all yeah. about. So. There's that. <laughs> so, well, I, I guess the, the first part, I, I usually, when I talk to individuals who write memoirs, one of the things that um, stands out to me, first of all, it, it takes a lot of courage to write a memoir, and especially including one that's filled with um, dysfunction, challenge, and all kinds of obstacles. Um, when you set out to write your memoir, did you have any um, hesitation or um, any kind of reluctance to putting in all of the details that you did? Uh, no, I really didn't. I, When I set out to write my memoir, my only thought process was I just had to do it to 
understand myself and my family and all the chaos I grew up because before I started writing it, I really didn't understand all that was, you know, involved in our family dysfunction. And I just had this voracious need to finally understand why I had made the decisions I had made and where why I had gotten to where I was. And that was my only focus was just I have to get this, I have to get this out of my heart and my head and on paper. And I've, I've never really looked back. I haven't had any hesitation in sharing my story. Oh, that's great. You know, um, now with the Mormon connection, um, that had to have been, I mean, whenever I hear of any kind of, um, you know, article or any kind of news about, you know, that kind of hints had, you know, dysfunction in, in particularly in a Mormon community, um, what, what what kind of um, reaction did you get, you know, from them? How, how did kind of how did that play out, you know, with the idea of, you know, putting it out there as um, you know part of, I guess, Mormon royalty in a way, as far as your your family's history. Yeah, that's that's been an interesting challenge. So I when I got close to publishing my book, I had second thoughts, not second thoughts, but I had, you know, visions of having some men standing on my front porch and saying that I was, you know, like fighting mm-hmm. from the church or some kind of um, negative, you know, kickback, but I really haven't had anything like that at all. I think there's so many platforms right now where people are speaking about their exit from Mormonism, so luckily for me, my I think my timing was good. As far as the family goes, that's been a little bit more interesting. It's been a bit of a mixed bag. I have some family members that are very encouraging and supportive and uh, really happy that I'm speaking about all of these things, even though they may not agree with me. There are a couple that have been really understanding and supportive that I just had the need to talk about it and, you know, expose what I did. But then there are others who actually asked me not to and now that the book is out and I actually have, it's it's a bit uncomfortable at large family gatherings because there are those mm-hmm. that still are just not wanting to talk about it. And I walk in the room and it's like everybody kind of like doesn't want to make eye contact with me, or at least the ones that are uncomfortable about what I talked about in my book. So it's been it's been interesting, but we're all still, you know, cordial and close, and it hasn't been a problem. It's just been a little awkward. Yeah, yeah. A hush comes over the room, I'm sure. It's like, um, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So let, let's start, first of all, talking about your parents. Um, can you tell us, a, you know, um, in, in the introduction I mentioned, you know, about um, your your dad having undiagnosed schizophrenia. Can you tell us um, kind of your experience um uh, you know about that. I mean, you know, how did it? How did he appear to you? And, and you know, what were some of the, um, I guess, signs or symptoms? You may probably in hindsight, but but in you know that that pointed to that particular diagnosis. Yeah. So yeah, I, when I was young, I obviously didn't realize that 
either of my parents were mentally ill. We just didn't know that our parents were any different from anybody else's parents. Uh, the first, the first time I really recall hearing anything about my dad's mental illness were stories from my aunts and uncles and, um, and from my mom once I reconnected with her later. So he, he of course was in and out of the psychiatric hospital, but we never heard. They never talked to us about that as kids. We were little. Um, those were the times when people just didn't talk about it openly, I guess. But I never, I never remember my parents talking about their mental illness or their emotional state or ours. Never even asked us how we were doing through all of this chaos. So it was just, it was kind of strange because I honestly didn't know that my parents were sick until I was into my probably 30s. So, and then that's when I found out from my stepmother and my mother that my father had been diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia early on. But then uh, I think later on when he suffered his political demise, he was then later diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that they thought that the earlier diagnosis of schizophrenia was a misdiagnosis, but he did have mm. paranoid delusions and it looked like schizophrenia. So. Who knows? And he never yeah. certainly talked to us about it. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I understand that um, you, this memoir, you know, a lot of the information for the memoir came from your mother's journals. So tell us, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, about your, your mother and then that that time period where where there was no connection and, and just to reconnect and how that all came about. Okay. So my mother was, uh, she had six kids very quickly in succession and they were living in their own form of chaos and, you know, self, self-inflicted for the most part, but they had their own, you know, uh, backgrounds for that but they were we were living in salt lake when my older siblings were born and then when they moved to the four corners area my father had accepted a position with shell oil and that's when my little sister and i were born and they just kind of went off the deep end in terms of how they were raised they started partying and uh swinging and my dad tells me that there were stories of orgies and so, of course, my mother's going to get depressed because <laughs> that's a lot to handle. So, um, she was, she was again, just, I think, uh, clinically depressed. She uh, fought that for many, many years, was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and actually underwent electric shock therapy. And eventually, in the end, she ended up leaving the psychiatric hospital with another woman and left my dad and us six kids um, uh, in 1960, let's see, when it was 66, I was eight years old, and we didn't see her again for five years, didn't hear from her. My parents, the only thing they explained to us and my grandparents was that she had a nervous breakdown. And so, of course, us kids took that on as, well, it must have been our fault because we're bad kids, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. there's six of us and we're rowdy, and we thought we caused her to have a nervous breakdown. So... Uh, I can't imagine that was a healthy thing to to take on, but I don't really consciously remember taking that on, really, other than it shows up later. (laughs) So she came back five years later, and then she'd come in 
to our lives every two or three years, take us to lunch, and then leave. So we never really connected with her on any kind of a, you know, deep level Mm -hmm. at all when she'd come. It was just like she was this person that was just like a friend, a family friend. would come in to see Mm -hmm. us, ask us a few questions about our lives, and then leave. So it was very strange. And and then when my father, I was 34 years old, and my father told me that I wasn't his biologic daughter, and that's when my whole world kind of came unraveled. That's when I just went into a tailspin. So, and, and I was so angry at her because not only did she leave my older brothers and sisters who were hers and my father's kids, but then she left my little sister and I who were from another relationship, from a fair she had uh, in the swinging relationships. And so I couldn't for the life of me understand why she'd at least leave us two behind. We weren't his. And, of course, she knew he, who he was. She knew he was abusive. She knew he was mentally ill, and yet she left us anyway. So I was really, really pissed off for a long time at her. <laughs> and I wrote her a scathing letter, and she had to do her own healing from that. But that actually ended up starting our conversations and our healing process, and we had some really, really tough conversations over you know, the years, that that all happened in 1994 when I kind of found all this out, but I didn't really start to reconnect with her, and, um, you know, I wrote the letter in about 96, but it was it was probably four or five years later that I actually started to, you know, want to really talk to her in a meaningful way instead of just, you know, on a surface level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy. That that had to have been, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, the, I mean, from a, being raised in a, a Mormon kind of environment and then dealing with swingers. I mean, I don't, I don't know much about right. the Mormon state, <laughs> but those two don't seem congruent to me. Um, and anyway, yeah, not um, acceptable at all. <laughs> okay. So now, you know, during this period, you know, of, uh, um, you know, when, when your, you know, when your parent, your mother had left and, and you mentioned your father being abusive, um, how does, did, um, the Mormon structure or even, you know, family or neighbors, how, how, how was 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 intervention even possible or, or thought of or how did how did it allow to continue without you know because in today's society you call it DHS <laughs> you know right away you know if, right. there's, if there's anything like that so can you tell us a little bit about how uh, how I guess continued without any possible intervention? Yeah, I I honestly, I've thought about this so long and so hard, and I honestly think that, um, you know, back in that day, this was in the 50s and 60s, uh, that my my grandmother and my father just kind of tried to put this protective wall around our family. They didn't, they didn't talk to anybody about it, and we weren't really allowed to talk about our feelings. So, therefore, we're in this, you know, huge state of denial that anything's even wrong. So mm-hmm. my grandma would, would, you know, kind of wisp in and take care of things when things got really crazy and my parents were in the hospital, sometimes both at the same time. But but nobody ever called any authorities. And 
there were even instances where the police would come and take my parents away and just leave all of us kids alone. And there were neighbors seeing this, relatives. I don't understand how, even back then, how we didn't get hauled off to, you know, foster homes. And I really am surprised that all of us are even still alive because it was it was just all that life-threatening and even into our adulthood, adulthood but nobody intervened. And I, I have to think that part of it is because I think people were afraid of my father because he could be mm-hmm. very intimidating and including my mother. So she, now, you know, once I reconnected with her and talked to her about, you know, why didn't she take us? Why didn't she at least take my master and I, my little sister? And she just said, her, your father would have never let me. He would have hunted me down and killed me. She just really believed mm-hmm. that. And so I think everybody wow. was afraid to intervene, partly because of him, because he was such a lieutenant. <laughs> I use that term, and he was mm-hmm. such a wild card, and you never knew what you were going to get. Um, I think it, I think it was a combination of just the times when people didn't talk about family's problems, and and then everybody was intimidated by him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can I can understand that um, you know her feeling about hunt balance. You know, when my father left and I was a young child, um, you know, I I lost complete contact, and it wasn't until I reconnected with him in, later in life that I you know mm-hmm. find out that she pretty much said the same thing to him. You know, you come around together, you contact him, I'll kill you. And it was very attacking him with a knife that kind of, you know, led him to believe that right. he do it. You know what? So, so it's kind of like, you know, if you're threatened with your life, it doesn't really feel threatened, you know, that, you know, you're going to kind of exactly. do everything you can to avoid it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And back then there weren't, women's shelters or, you know, things like that, where mom, mom just didn't have the resources, nor did dad, but there are today. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you, you mentioned that your mom left a facility with a woman. Um, so she had this um, sexual relationship with a woman. Tell us a little bit about that, because, I mean, that, you know, in your subsequent reconnection and, and talking with her about that, you know, kind of, you know, how, you know, was this something that, you know, how did your mom kind of come to that that uh, realization or that acceptance of that kind of a relationship? Yeah. So, you know, when I started writing the book, I started kind of trying to remember how this all played out when she left. I don't have a whole lot of memories, but I do remember very vividly that about, I don't know, a week, maybe just a few days before she ended up leaving, she had been discharged from the hospital for just a kind of a familial visit, and she took us to a park, and she actually brought her friend that she ended up running away with to meet us of all things. Now that I think back on that, I'm like, that is so weird that she would do that. But I think it was her way of just saying goodbye, even though we didn't know it at the time. And, you know, of course, we didn't, we were all little, we didn't understand what was happening. But then uh, later when she did leave, and we got quite a bit older, it was probably when I was 12 or 13, we'd just hear kind of snide comments from my dad or my stepmom, who's my mom's sister, by the way. 
And um, I know that's you know, that crazy. We hear that, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Um, we just hear my dad, you know, would say, "Oh, you know, your mom's a lesbian," and we didn't even know what that was. And you know, back then people weren't talking about anything like that. So we just thought he was, you know, had an axe to grind and was just, you know, saying mean things about her. So uh, it wasn't until I didn't really question her, um, you know, that she was actually in lesbian relationships until she came to see me up at Utah State when I was in college my first year. And she brought a different person because her and her girlfriend that she ran away with to begin with had broken up. So she brought another female with her. And I didn't really question it at first, but as soon as they left, all my roommates were like, is your mom a lesbian? And she thought, like, that lady's super much. And I was like, I don't think so. I don't know. You know, so... So, you know, when it's your parents, you don't want to believe this stuff is going on, if they even have a sex life period, let alone, you know, not a <laughs> typical Mormon, you know, Utah relationship. So I just kind of, again, because I've been programmed to live in denial anyway, I denied all of that. And it wasn't until I was raising my little kids and um, my stepmom and my aunt mom, we call her, uh, I just went to her house one day and just asked her point blank, you know, is mom a lesbian? And she said, yeah, yeah, he didn't know that. And I'm like, well, I've wondered, but nobody's ever told us. And she's like, oh, yeah, she is. So that was a little bit hard because, again, that was in the, excuse me, that was in like the 80s. And, again, you know, people weren't, especially in Utah, being very open about discussing things like that. And so, you know, and I knew friends that were gay by that time and had, you know, mm-hmm. heard about it. But to have it hit our own family and have it be your mother, we were all, and I hate to say this now, but we were all embarrassed by it and embarrassed by her. Mm-hmm. So when she started mm-hmm. coming around and coming to visit us and would bring, you know, yet another partner, we were all, we would all just be kind of like, oh, shit. <laughs> what do we say? What do we do? You know, we just didn't know how to handle it. And, of course, we weren't prepared to actually talk about it. And I think she was. And she, at this point, she was hoping we were mature enough to have, you know, an intelligent conversation about it and be um, real about it with us. But we weren't ready. So we just kind of pushed, kept her at a distance. We, you know, we'd have, again, surface conversation, but we just didn't want to know. And I do regret that. Um, but we all had to come to our time where we were ready to talk about it. And that happened when I was in my late 40s. So it took me a long yeah. time to come around. <laughs> yeah. And, and your other siblings were, I mean, have they too come around or are there some still reluctant to do so? No. Yeah, everybody has mm-hmm. come around. You know, okay. we've all no. come around in our own way and in our own timing, but everybody became very accepting of her and her partner we just absolutely love. She had her last partner that we got to know really well. They were together for 20 years and we we just adored her, and we we got very close, and we did all reconnect with mom in our own ways, and so happy for that. That that's great. And, and now um, you, in, um, I read that you, there were through your mom's journals um, that you mm-hmm. got a lot of information. Can you tell us a little bit about those journals? I mean, you know, those journals tend to be very 
personal kinds of writing. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about, you know, how you came upon them and, you know, what, what, what was that process like going through those journals? Yeah, that's been wild, and I'm just so grateful that she left those journals behind and left them with me. So I didn't know she had all the journals. I knew she was writing, and I knew, you know, she journaled um, because she, you know, always told us when we'd go visit her that that was her way of, you know, just kind of going through her own uh, healing process, and her counselors had urged her to do that. So we knew that she wrote. I didn't know she wrote every single day, pretty much, since the day she left us. Um, mm. And so I didn't realize that there would that she would have even saved them all or anything. But it was important for her, and that was her way of healing. And then she started taking writing classes, and she actually published a poetry uh, CD, and she wrote a book just for us kids in about 2008, so that we could kind of have a little better understanding of her life, and um, it was just, it was a, such a gift, but when she gave it to me at the time, and I think most of my siblings, again, we weren't ready to hear what she had to say, it was just too much, so I kind of put it on a shelf mm-hmm. for a couple of years, and then I got it out and started to just really, really soften my heart of where where she came from and her side of the story, and why she had, it made me understand why she absolutely had to leave in order to save herself. And that's the time when I started to just really have compassion for her and um, really, you know, open my heart to her. And then she started to get sick. Her health started to decline. And when she was about, about two weeks before she passed, she, my sister and I were down in Reno visiting her in the hospital, and she pulled us aside and said, there, I have journals in my headboard. She had one of those rolling headboards that open up. Mm-hmm. And she said, I want you two to go get those, put them in a box, and ship them to your house before anybody else, before they get distributed. Everybody takes them, and I want them together. And she knew I was writing my book at the time where I just barely started. And she said, I want you to take these, and I think they'll help you a lot in your writing. So it was such a gift, and it was really hard to read them, and because she just, you know, detailed every single bit of her um, tra- trauma and her healing journal, and just every sort of detail of her life. So it was a little bit difficult to read, but but it really helped me understand why she did what she did and why we are who we are, and helped me with the book in terms of just understanding timeline and her voice in the whole narrative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had to have uh, brought up, you know, that compassionate side of you, you know, recognizing, you know, the struggles that she had to endure and and, and, and the difficult decisions, you know, that, that she, right. she had to make. Exactly. Yeah, she was tortured with that her whole life and really tried her best to, you know, be there for us and reconnect with us at the level that she, you know, could and stay healthy. And um, she really, really was very open about it. And I think she, I think by handing over those journals, it was good for her to release that. And then also reconnecting with all of us kids, she was able to go in peace and know that she had 
you know, done the best you could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Gosh. Well, Diana, mm-hmm. we're about halfway through the show, so I want to take just a, a quick 90-second break, and then when we come back, um, let's go ahead and continue our conversation, okay? That sounds great. Thank you. Great. Okay, everyone, stick tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Diana Cannon Ragsdale, and we are talking about her new memoir, Loose Cannons, a memoir of mania and mayhem in a Mormon family. For more information, you can visit Diana's website, which is www.dianaradsdale.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Diana. Thank you. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about the Mormon Church. Again, I don't know much about it. Um, so, can you tell us, uh, first of all, you know, you have removed yourself from the Mormon Church, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So, tell us, how how does that happen? How, I mean, is it, you know, is it simply, I mean, I'm, I, I was, uh, I was born and raised Catholic, and, you know, I just kind of stopped, <laughs> you know, as far as Catholic. But, um, yeah. for the, for the Mormon, you know, um, faith, um, can you tell us, you know, what, what, what does it involve kind of, I guess, leading the, the church? Okay. So, yeah, I, um, you know, first I just want to say that I don't have any anger or bitter feelings about the church at all. And I've really yeah. actually been out of the LDS faith for many, many, many years. I kind of dipped my toe in for a short minute with my third husband because it was, you know, something that he kind of talked me into. But um, I've really been out of church since I was 28 years old. So it's been a really long time, and I didn't have, like, a crisis like a lot of people do because I never really had a conviction of the LDS doctrine or anything. I was just kind of – it was an expectation for me, and – um, and it's all I knew, and I kind of lived in this bubble of that's what everybody's doing, and especially my family, so I just kind of went with the flow. But 
Um, so I really kind of emotionally left the church a long, long time ago, but I officially resigned about seven years ago, and I only did that because I was writing the book, and I, I didn't want to worry about any backlash, so I decided to just leave on my own terms <laughs> officially. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a fairly easy process. I'll, I mean, there's a website that you can go online and find the, a template for resigning from the LDS church and walk you through a few questions. You get it um, notarized and signed and send it in, and that's it. you're done. So it's pretty easy to leave. Um, okay. But, it, you know, I, yeah, it's it's easy. It was for me. It's just been more freeing than anything. It's, you know, it's always just kind of felt like there were way too many expectations on me and rules that I couldn't follow. I'm kind of a rebel at heart, so I just <laughs> didn't like all the stricter rules. <laughs> I understand that. I can understand that. So, um, now, I I have a very good friend whose father has recently um, become involved in um, LDS um, Mormon, um, you know, theology, Um, having, you know, people come to his door, and and now it's it's a constant Mm -hmm. um, visiting and you know, espousing of um, of doctrine, and, you know, if he wanted to see his deceased wife again, they would do what he said or what they said. Um, right. So um, tell, tell us a little, I mean, and my, my friend is at her wit's end, you know, with this, because um, it's, you know, they weren't raised, they were raised Southern Baptist, you know, and... Um, you know, and it's just yeah. so contrary. And she sees her dad, who is in his 80s, you know, I think late 80s, oh, um, going down this rabbit hole. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, I, I guess, the, the approach used to bring in new congregants? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a very strong approach that they have. Absolutely, they have the best fellowshipping program that I know of in any religion. You know, they send out missionaries all over the world, and then there are also local missionaries. When you sign up to be, you know, an adult LDS person, you're also agreeing that not only will you live the faith, but you will bring other people into it. You know, so it's. It's a very strong fellowshipping program, and it's an ex- expectation that everybody will do their part in bringing in new members. Um, you know, I can obviously only speak to my experience with the church, mm-hmm. and I can't speak for anybody else. But, you know, it's in my case, um, you know, I was only – I was eight years old when I was really introduced to it because when I was really young, my parents weren't going to church. So from the age of eight to ten, you know, to where I left um, to get married in the temple at 19, um, I was definitely, you know, enmeshed in the church, and I wanted to believe in it because, and and this is why I think how a lot of people get um, hooked into the, the belief system is who wouldn't want to believe that you can be with your family in the afterlife forever? You know, with everybody that you love. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a pretty amazing concept and story. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's it's just, you know, I think it's a situation where if you want to believe in something bad enough, just like, you know, in ancient times people believed Mm -hmm. in mythology and 
people believe in Santa Claus. I mean, it's to me, it's no different than than any of that kind of stuff where you you want to believe in it bad enough that you'll you'll forego any other knowledge that you have or even stop any other knowledge from coming into you that would take that um, that belief away from you and that goal of celestial life, living with your eternal family. The problem with that is there's just it's a lot of work and it's it's um to me it's unrealistic to expect anybody to live that perfectly as humans and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people get really depressed and they have anxiety because they don't feel like they're measuring up and well what if my kid gets divorced now that's going to screw up the whole eternal plan and I mean it's just so much fear and so much control and so much anxiety around you know not living for now not living for the present but living for this celestial life with the rest of your family which I don't know I I mean I in my head I just can't make it work but but I know there's a lot of people that that's that's their whole world is to obtain celestial glory yeah yeah it it is well I mean it, it does seem to set up you know um, I mean, expectations that would be, you know, extremely difficult to, you know, to meet, you know, and then also, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, of course, then, you know, kind of goes down the line, you know, if you can't meet the expectations, then comes, you know, the anxiety, and then from there, I mean, it, it would just seem to be able to be the, the basis of of so much conflict. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, right. embedded in, in the doctrine, you know, the conflict is going to be a natural result. Exactly, exactly. I know so many yeah. people who are still in it, but only in it because of their family expectations and, you know, mm-hmm. they might not believe in the doctrine anymore because there's plenty of information out there that actually, you know, historically kind of disprove the whole Joseph Smith story. There's plenty of information that that discounts, you know, scientifically that any of this stuff could have happened. So, But, again, if people want to believe that enough or there's too much consequence for them to actually question it or, heaven forbid, leave, it's just, it's just catastrophic for some families and they just can't do it. Exactly. Heaven forbid. That's going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, going on in my own family right now, where kids are, you know, especially the younger uh-huh. kids are wanting to leave, but they they're in marriages. They got married in a temple. They're, you know, conflicted. They know that it's, you know, that it's impossible for all of this stuff to be actual truth that, that they were learned, you know, taught at such a young age, but they just can't leave because it impacts their their, their whole entire life and world. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, we, you know, the things that you were saying about, you know, the um, ignorance of fact or, you know, or, or the desire not to look at, you know, um, in a in a discerning way, you know, at, at some of the things mm-hmm. that one one has taught, you know, does it does it kind of register to the level of of a cult kind of thing. You know, we have right now in, in today's society some people who, you know, despite all the facts, you know, they're revered, you know, and, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it gives the appearance of a cult. Is, is, would that be 
Um, is that too harsh, or, or is that kind of maybe accurately reflect some of it? Well, you know, I've been asked that a lot, and I have my thoughts about that. I, um, if you look at the definition of cult, then it absolutely fits the, you know, the textbook uh, definition okay. of a cult. Now, in my mind, I'm like, okay, if these churches or organizations or cults would just admit that they're a business or a cult or whatever, you know, these things really are in reality, and just go, you know, okay, well, it might be a cult, but I'm excited about it. Like, I want to be a part of this cult. It's kind of cool. You know, it offers this and this and this for me. So maybe if mm-hmm. we keep talking about what a cult really is, people won't have such a negative you know, knee-jerk reaction to the word cult because, and I try to, sometimes in my conversations, especially locally, I try to be careful with using that word. I kind of say cult-ish because, <laughs> you know, I have to, I have to know my audience. But, but it, um, to me, I think we just need to keep talking about it, you know, and maybe just get comfortable with the fact that, yeah, it might be a cult, but I love it and this is the lifestyle I want and, you know, then it's not so scary or so negative to actually think that you might be stuck in something like that. <laughs> that's my, yeah. Yeah, that's I, I, my I, thought on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I understand. And, and that's, that's a very rational, you know, um, view of, of the, you mm-hmm. know, the things that, you know, that kind of behavior. And so mm-hmm. what would you say was the um, – your kind of um, your your spiritual um, uh, belief system. Kind of how how did your spiritual belief system change? You know, after leaving the, the Mormon, you know, faith, or did it at all change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it definitely did. I like I said, I didn't really have a faith crisis or I wasn't, um, you know, I didn't necessarily consider myself extremely religious at all. I was in a, you know, more for the community and social reasons, but, but I did miss that, you know, and Mm -hmm. when I was going through some hard times after my third divorce, I really had to get in touch with myself and say, so what is it that you believe? If you don't believe this, what is it that you believe and who are you and what are your core beliefs about spirituality and um, and what what is going to, you know, what is my spiritual journey going to look like? So I really have pursued a more spiritual approach. I, you know, I'm a huge Mother Nature lover, and um, I, I just kind of feel like I'm more of a earthy, you know, spiritual person, and, you know, if I can be outdoors and just anywhere outdoors, what doesn't matter what I'm doing, then I feel like I'm more spiritually connected than I am sitting in a church building. So my spiritual journey has been to be inspired by other people who have uh, have gone through kind of spiritual journeys. I've read a lot of Buddha and love the, you know, concept of just loving people and being a good person, not because somebody's forcing you to do it, or, but because it's the right thing to do. And also just Mother Nature is my kind of spiritual place where I go when I need to, you know, to talk to somebody or 
you know, talk to the gods and goddesses that are out there. If anybody's listening, you know, it's always in nature. That she is mine. Mother Nature is my my best friend. I, I'm a nature yes. photographer, so so I go out and, oh. and my my preaching is through photos, <laughs> photos of nature. You know, you go ahead and see. I and, love uh, that. <laughs> Very much. I just, you know, and, and to me, it's just, um, you know, that the idea of just connecting, um, connecting with the earth, and, and recognizing, you know, just the beauty, and and everything around us, and, and the things that we can learn, you know, just, um, you know, I, I I think I have gotten some of my, for me, <laughs> profound insights is is just walking, you know, walking, um, walking in nature. And, you know, so that's, yeah. you know, once I recognize that connection, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, this one I can do. You know, this one I can do. Right, right, yeah. I've had those same experiences. It's just, yeah, my happy place for sure. Exactly. So now would you say that it was worth going through and kind of digging through all of this Um other stuff, you know, that you kind of have to, you know, for some people, some people, you know, would be happy just not looking at the past mm-hmm. and looking at dysfunction. Um, can you tell us, you know, kind of, you know, if you feel that it was worth it and, and why if someone is kind of leaning against that, why they might want to open up to that possibility? Yeah, that, that's been interesting. So I, for me, I can 100% say that it's been worth it. I don't know that it is for everybody, um, but I was just so conflicted with, you know, with who I was and why I had made some of the choices that I had, and it was actually just making me unhealthy. So for me to dig deep and find out all of these family secrets and expose them and, the you know, the the damaging parts of my life, just to write them down and talk about them, and I actually got professional counseling. For me, I absolutely needed that, or I don't know that I would have survived it to this point, or, or you know, just thrived, because I, I feel like not only did I survive, but I feel like I've been able to, to, um, to thrive, in, you know, despite all of the chaos I was born into. So for me, I think it was absolutely worth it. Now, the rest of my family, I would say I'm probably the only one that is comfortable with that. The rest of them would just assume that I hadn't exposed all of this about the family. And uh, even though we've had some decent conversations about it, you know, I think their their mantra and their uh, style is to just kind of keep it, you know, private and secret and hidden and uh, not to expose it or talk about it. But um, I don't know where I get that, probably from my mother, because she's kind of what's the same way and having to write about it. But... I just think that by talking about difficult things and uncomfortable things that we actually heal better than keeping them inside. That's just my own my own process has worked out that way for me. Yeah, yeah. And I can understand that, you know, um you know, the the recognition the you know, the compassion that you experienced when reading your mother's journals, you know, that that mm-hmm. kind of um feeling and, and perspective, you know, couldn't be achieved otherwise. I mean, that really is the way right. you should go about that. So um, now with 
you know, with that, you know, idea that, you know, some choose not to, what, what, what's your feeling about, you know, keeping someone around who maybe has, you know, hurt you? So can, can you talk a little bit about, um, how to navigate, how you navigated, you know, the, um, the process of interacting with people who you know hurt you in your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one was a tough one for me to navigate because I, you know, was not, none of us kids were um, really, we didn't have a tool set to really create boundaries for ourselves until, I mean, we're all still working on that, I think, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, but that's always been an issue for me. So for me to to be able to, you know, set a boundary with somebody that might be toxic in my life was really, really difficult. It took me a lot of trial and error, but it was, I was in a counseling session, uh, and this was in about 2002 with a counselor, and he actually said something so profound to me and just said, you know, you could choose what kind of relationship you want with your parents. You don't, you're not obligated to be, you know, there for them. You know, if it's making you sick and you're unhealthy and it's not safe for your kids, you get to choose that. So at that moment, I was like, okay, this can be a conscious decision. Like, it, it was it was life-changing for me because it was at that point where I was like, okay, I know the relationship between my parents and I is never going to be normal. It just doesn't have that possibility. Too much happened, too much toxicity, too much abuse, all of that, too much trauma for all of us. But once I knew it could be my decision and I could set a boundary on what kind of relationship I wanted with my parents, that I could love them how and when I wanted or create distance if I needed to. It was it was so empowering for me to actually realize that. And, and now that can kind of take place with other people, not necessarily family members, but maybe friends that I've had that are ne- not necessarily, you know, the best friends to have that might be, you know, a little bit toxic and dramatic or whatever. I'm at a point in my life where I just don't want that anymore. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's taken a yeah. lot of acceptance and reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. You know, now would you say that it's, uh, the counseling was what maybe, you know, helped you become, you know, the, the happy person, the happy person that you are? I think so. I'm a huge believer in professional counselors, if you find good ones. And I've used, you know, counseling since I was, I think I went to my first counselor when I was probably 25. And off and on, because of my chaotic adulthood, I reached out to for professional help. And there have been so many times when it's just had this profound message for me that has stuck. And... You know, I mean, thank God I was born with a lot of resilience, and I think that that helped me so much and actually makes it, you know, possible for me to reach out for help and ask for help. And I'm also, you know, kind of an optimistic person, so I'm always I'm always having hope that things can be better. And I know there's, you know, help out there for me, and why not tap into that resource because I really didn't have any tools on my own to help myself or navigate all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, when it comes time to, um, for one who maybe ha- would have a, 
traumatic past. Um, is is there like no time at all? You know, to to you know, better than now, better now than never to to start to change that story. You know, I think everybody has their own process. My mom used to actually really kind of force us, not force us, but she'd she'd have really lengthy discussions with all of us kids about you. You know, I, I would really love it if she'd been offered to pay for it. Would love for you to get into some counseling. You've got things are going to come up for you at some point in your life. And then, as she got through, you know, a lot of her healings, she realized that she was just, you know, um, beating a dead horse because she was, you know, she started to realize that everybody has their own own time mm-hmm. frame on what they need to work on and when. And I certainly did. I was very resistant to getting any help professionally. I was resistant to even thinking I needed any. I just thought it was everybody else that was, you know, making me mad and that I didn't have any accountability or responsibility. So um, I lived a lot of my life that way. And even though she offered to pay for it and was encouraging, I just wasn't ready. And I think everybody Mm -hmm. has their own timeline and their own journey. And that's been a good thing for me to learn also is that you know, I'll see maybe a family member who's depressed or having some issues, and I just think, you know what, at some point, this is, it's going to, push is going to come to shove, and they're going to have to address this, and in their own time and in their own way. This is not up to me to, you know, push that agenda on anybody, but, yeah, so I definitely took my time. I'm definitely not a quick learner on that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing, so. because I mean, there was your time, yeah. so that was you know that was that was exactly. uh, that was the key, yeah, yeah, and, and exactly. you know and you recognize like that one counselor said you know you had a choice to you know love or or not or you know how you chose to mm-hmm. respond and and a lot of times people don't recognize that option of choice you know and and you know being able to uh, react differently you know exactly uh, so that's yeah. Wow. So we're down toward the end of the show, Diana. So what what do you hope the, okay. the readers will take away from reading Loose Cannons? I hope the message is a message of hope that even though you come from a traumatic, uh, you know, family or dysfunctional family or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, dysfunction there was in your family or even your um, friends, that, that there is hope that, you know, you can – you can come through it, and I think the only way to do that is by talking openly about it, and that's why I shared my story and continue to share my story is because I have been inspired by so many other people who have come through difficult times, and I just hope there's a message of, you know, hope that you can overcome, and, and, and I would love to take away the stigma of, of dysfunction and mental illness. If those two things could be accomplished, then I would be just thrilled. Yes. Well, I know that um, many people will will read it and think, well, if Diana can go through this and come out at the other end, then I can. <laughs> you know? So, um, well, yeah. I really thank you for your time. This has really been a treat. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Well, I appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. 
Again, everyone, today, my special guest is by Diana Cannon Ragsdale. We've been talking about her new memoir, Loose Cannons, a memoir of media and mayhem in a Mormon family. And again, you can find out more by visiting the website, www.dianaragsdale.com. Everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.